You may recall, I hope, that we have been studying the book of Matthew, chapters 24 and 25, which have been the presentation of Jesus to his disciples that we know as the Olivet Discourse. A lengthy discussion by the Lord, monologue actually, by the Lord, in answer to the questions that they had regarding the coming of his kingdom. In that Olivet Discourse, he had described several things that would take place, some of which have already been fulfilled historically, others of which have not yet been fulfilled. There is coming a day that those things will indeed be fulfilled. We're going to be looking today at a period of time that is described by the Lord immediately following what we know of as the tribulation period, that seven-year time of Jacob's trouble, that period of time where if the Lord had not intervened, men would have destroyed themselves. Jesus describes it as a time that has never been seen before nor ever will again be seen with such devastation, such terrible evil things that will be taking place during that time. That time has not yet happened. It is a seven-year period of time that was described by Daniel the prophet in chapter 9 of his great prophetic word that spoke of a period of time a totaling 490 years of God's focus on the nation of Israel, of which 483 years have been indeed historically completed, fulfilled. The nation of Israel existed for a very particular purpose in God's plan, and they will exist in God's plan forever because they are God's people. They have not been removed permanently They have not been eliminated by the Lord. They have not been forsaken by God. But Paul describes it as a veil that has been placed over their heads. They do not know because they do not seek to know. They have lost their sense of direction with regard to the things of God. But that does not mean that God has forsaken them, that God will not revive them. And He is doing that now in this present age. And one of the signs that Jesus himself spoke of in this Olivet Discourse had to do with the nation of Israel being revived, brought back into the land. He says it in a very allegorical way, but it is indeed something that we can look at because of our perspective looking back at the history of the world. We can identify what Jesus was speaking of when he said the fig tree will be blossoming in the last days and that is a sign that, and among other signs, that the end will be coming. In short order. Those are the things that we've looked at over the course of the last several weeks in chapters 24 and 25. The last few weeks we've been looking at some parables that Jesus has spoken with the regard of the focus that he had in answering their questions about the end of time. Remember, they had asked three basic questions. He had told them that the temple would be destroyed, that not one stone would be upon another. And Jesus gave them that information, and it caused them to wonder, well, if that's the case, then when will these things be? And if those things are going to happen, we know that because of what you have already told us, that you're going to set up your kingdom. So when will this destruction of the temple be come a reality, and then when will the end of days be, and when will you establish your kingdom? Those were the three questions that they had asked him, and he's answered those questions in what we've looked at so far. The last time we looked at this parable that was given in chapter 25 up to verse 30, and the one before that talked about the people of Israel and how he would be judging those people, the Jews, for either their acceptance or the rejection of the truth of God's Word. And those parables were very important, especially with regard to the Jewish nation. The church is not involved in this Olivet Discourse. We're sort of on the sidelines watching this historic panorama of events. Jesus talked to His disciples about a church. He said that, The gates of hell 
would not prevail against his church. He was going to establish his church. The word in the Greek language for church is ecclesia. It just simply means an assembling of people. He is gathering together a people for himself, and they will assemble, and they will be his people. And he told his Jewish disciples that there's another sheepfold, sheep that were not of this particular fold, which was referenced to, again, the Jews, but a separate group of sheep that would be his. That's the Gentiles. He was subtly telling them, and I hope all of us must realize that this is a very, very important concept for us to understand, that Jesus intended for his disciples to go out into all the world, and all the peoples of the world would be given an opportunity to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior and become part of that wonderful church of Christ. And you and I, who have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, are here to pronounce that fact that we are part of that one body that has united together as believers in Christ Jesus as His church. His church universal. His church spiritual. His church. It's not a making up of individual denominations. It's not a building. It is a people. We are His church. We're also known as His bride. The bride of Christ. We're also known as His body. We are the body of Christ. He is the head. Those are descriptives that are used in the Word of God to give us a sense of unity and a sense of bonding with our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus has finished those parables. And now in chapter 25, verse 31 to the end of the chapter, He's going to introduce another very important period of time that is discussed in the Word of God, but they knew very little about. And I suspect that perhaps there may be some of us here who don't know very much about it either, and so we're going to spend the rest of our time together talking about what is known as the millennial reign of Christ. The word millennial comes from a Greek word, millennium, which means a thousand. And you'll find reference to a thousand-year period of time in the book of Revelation in several particular verses. We'll look at a few of them tonight, today. But before we get into that, let me remind you that the tribulation period, that period of seven years, was dominated by an individual who proclaims himself to be God. In the middle of that seven-year period of time, by that time, he will have convinced the world that he is the one to follow. And in the middle of that seven-year period, he's going to go into the temple in Jerusalem that will have been rebuilt, and he'll stand in the holy place and refer to himself as God. And the people in the world at that time will either follow him or will be singled out, and they would be suffering tremendous persecution. Many of them will die because they would not receive what is called the mark of the beast. That mark of the beast doesn't occur until the midpoint of that tribulation period. That last three and a half years, he is going to take vengeance on all of those who will not follow him, but instead will still hang on to the truth that is being propagated throughout the world, especially by 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And the two witnesses that were in Jerusalem, which he would have had killed by that time, and had been raised from the dead in the middle of that first portion, actually at the end of that first three and a half years, that will be a miraculous event. And people will have seen that. But many people will still not turn to God. In spite of all the wonderful things that those two prophets would have done and said, in spite of all the wonderful things that the witnesses, the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, they will be constantly there proclaiming God's truth. And then, in the last three and a half years, an angel will be in the heavens proclaiming the gospel. Many people will turn to Christ in those days, but they will do so at the risk of of losing their lives. Not all of them will lose their lives. 
when God finally comes and puts an end to this terrible reign of the Antichrist, after that seven years are complete, at what we know of as the Battle of Armageddon, that battle will take place at that very time, and Jesus will come and He will put an end to the armies that are coming against Him by the power of His Word. Antichrist will be defeated. He and His prophet will be thrown into the lake of fire. Satan will be cast into that lake of fire. Eventually, but not then. He will be bound. He will not uh, have the ability to impact those who will be on the earth for the next period of time that is described by the Word of God. The church will have been taken out of this world. I'm convinced, I hope you understand this, I, I, I don't want to be emphatic, but I am emphatic that the church will be raptured at a particular time. But we don't know what time that is. But I believe it will be before the tribulation period begins. So we have the rapture of the church. We have other events that are recorded in the Word of God that will take place before the tribulation period begins. And then when the tribulation period begins, we know that that is going to happen because the Word of God tells us specifically that it begins when that man of sin establishes a peace treaty for the Jewish people, a seven-year covenant. But he breaks that covenant again in the middle of that seven-year period by going into the temple of the Jews and proclaiming himself to be God. And it is during that second half of the tribulation period that God protects one-third of the Jews from his attack against them. He hates the Jews because... He's filled with Satan himself. And Satan hates the Jews. Always has. From the very beginning, Satan has always been seeking a means of destroying the Jewish people. He's still doing it today. Do you realize that anti-Semitism is on the rise again? Or still, I should say. But it's getting worse. I read an article just the other day that the students at the University of Michigan gathered together and began to speak against the Jewish people. And many of them were chanting, Death to the Jews. Just like in Iran today, you'll hear that very phrase. Death to the Jews. Death to America. They hate Jews. They hate Christians. They hate God. That's what we are having to deal with in this last day. Persecution is on the rise of Christians everywhere around the world. And I don't know that perhaps it might happen here as well. Eventually, that's a very, very good likelihood. There are so many people who are turning their face against God in so many different ways. Evil is on the rise and we have been silent. My friends, we need to be a voice against evil. That's why the church is still here. The church is still here to shine a light in that darkness. But the people who love darkness hate light. Jesus said, if they hate me, they will hate you. Don't be afraid of that. Rejoice in that, because it is in fulfillment of what God has said regarding the last days in which we now stand. So keep, keep that in mind. The tribulation period now has come to an end. Jesus, in the last portion of Scripture that we read, has come. He's returned physically to the earth. Zechariah promised that. We'll look at that passage in Zechariah today. He's coming and He'll set His feet upon Mount Zion. He's coming to reign. And He's coming in glory. Jesus Himself said more than once, you will see the Son of Man coming in His glory with the angels in the clouds to reign upon the earth. That's not the rapture. That's what we refer to as the glorious appearing of Christ. Coming to reign, to establish the kingdom. Jesus will indeed reign in Jerusalem. He will sit on His throne. It's David's throne. But He is a descendant of David. 
And he is going to come and sit on that very throne in fulfillment of what the Word of God says regarding the kingdom of the Hebrew nation. When the Babylonian captivity took place in 586 B.C., there was no king on the throne of Jerusalem that was a descendant of David. His lineage had been broken. And many people thought, well, wait a minute. God made a covenant with David. What's happening here? That covenant now seems to have been broken, but God called it an everlasting covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, in the book of Psalms, we read over and over again that there is a promise that God had made to David that his son, one from his loins, would sit upon his throne forever. How can that be if there's no longer a man sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem? What, what they didn't know was that was just still part of God's plan. It was a break in that time that was required. Because from that moment, the time of the Babylonian captivity, until Jesus Christ sits on the throne in Jerusalem, we know of as the time of the Gentiles. Since there's no Jew sitting on the throne in Israel, reigning over the people of God, the time of the Gentiles continues. That will change when Christ comes to reign. And the time of the Gentiles will be completed according to God's Word when He comes. That's right around the corner, at least. Well, it's more than seven years from now, perhaps, but it's around the corner. As far as God is concerned, a day is a thousand Years, a year is a thousand days. God's timing is His time. But that seven-year period officially will now be declared to be over. Christ has come. He's set His feet upon Mount Zion. He's ready to reign. And the very first line of action that He takes is referred to in this passage that we'll be looking at today. So, rather long introduction, but turn now with me to Matthew 25, and let's read from verse 31, Jesus' own words regarding that particular event. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Keep in mind, the tribulation period has ended. Jesus is coming, and he's sitting on his throne, and he's about to make a judgment of the peoples, referred to here as the nations. The Jewish people had already been one-third of them spared, two-thirds of them destroyed during the tribulation period. They were already protected by the Lord. The nations have nothing to do with the Jewish people. This is Gentile judgment that is being presented here. Keep that in mind. Of all the nations, and the question, I guess, might be that some of you might have, well, why are the nations still? Aren't they all under one global system? Yes. They all had to pay allegiance to the Antichrist during that seven-year period. But they all were still uniquely members of specific nation-states. That always has been the case since the table of nations was introduced to us in Genesis chapter 10. And it will continue to be so afterward. They'll still exist as nations. We'll perhaps get a chance to talk a little bit more about that. But this is the Gentiles who are still remaining after all of the events that have taken place during the tribulation period. And they will be gathered together from all corners of the world to Jerusalem. And some of them will be considered goats on the left and some will be considered sheep on his right. He'll separate the goats from the sheep. We'll explain who the goats and sheep are momentarily. But keep in mind, 
we're talking about Gentiles. But there is a reference to, in this passage that we'll be looking at, a segment or remnant of the Jewish people. Take a look. Verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Now we, now we understand that the sheep that he's now addressing are what he calls righteous ones. Gentiles who were considered to be righteous. But he also talks about another group that hasn't yet been identified, but now is, in this passage that we just read, and he's referring to them as these, his brethren. Who are his brethren? Well, we know that a third of the Jews were preserved during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, and they had been brought with Jesus from that area that they were being protected to Jerusalem with him when he comes from Basra. That's where Petra is. That's where the people of the nation of Jews would have been protected in that city of Petra in southern Jordan today. And they will be brought with him at the end of the tribulation. They will witness his overcoming the entire group of peoples that come against him in the battle of Armageddon. And they will be there at this judgment but also the 144,000 witnesses. They will have been preserved by the Lord throughout that seven-year period of time. They will still be witnessing during the last three and a half years. But Satan, Antichrist, they will attempt to destroy those 144,000 witnesses. They will not be successful. Turn to Revelation chapter 14. We're going to deviate from Matthew for just a moment and look at a few passages of Scripture that give us some insight as to what is taking place and what we can expect following these things. Revelation chapter 14 says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. By the way, that lamb is Christ. There's no question that this is a reference to Jesus Christ the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, a Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000 having His Father's name written on their foreheads. Who are those 144,000? Those are the Jewish witnesses, the evangelists of the seven-year period of tribulation, who will be going around the world proclaiming that He is God. The Gospel will be delivered by these Faithful Jews, 144,000 of them. They'll still be, all of them, alive at the end of the tribulation period. That's what the book of Revelation just tells us here. When he stands on Mount Zion, they will stand with him. So, whether it's just the 144,000 Jews or the Jews also that were preserved in Petra, all of those are Jews that are still going to be able to enter into the millennial reign of Christ as righteous ones, Jews, they will still be nationally known as Jews during that wonderful period of time known as the millennial reign of Christ. The nation of Egypt will still be a nation. The nation of Ethiopia will still be a nation. The nation of Syria will still be a nation. And Iraq and Iran. All of them will have their uniqueness as nations, but they will all be under the authority of Jesus Christ when He reigns with a rod of iron over all of the world. But that's not all. Let's take a look at Zechariah chapter 14. Again, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah gives us a detail of what will take place when Jesus arrives with what we call 
that great, wonderful moment in mankind's history, the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. Verse 4 says in verse, uh, chapter 14 of the book of Zechariah, And in that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Circle or underline that word valley. That's an important thing that we'll be considering in the next portion that we're going to be looking at after the reading here. It'll make a large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, half of it shall toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. All the saints. Who are they? Raise your hand. You're one of them. That's a reference to the church. It's in the Old Testament. Paul takes that verse and proclaims in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Connect the dots. That's you. Here in Zechariah. That's wonderful news. We're coming back with Him. That's why I suggest so very strongly that in order for us to come back with Him, we must have been taken out of this world to be with Him, and that will be the case. That seven-year period of tribulation will be a time of celebration for the church in glory. It will be the marriage feast that we all will participate in. But we will come with Him. We won't read it, but again, in the book of Revelation, it talks about the fact that He's coming on a white horse. And with Him, there will be a multitude of saints coming with Him on white horses. Have you ever ridden a horse? You're going to. All the saints will be with you. He says in verse 6 of Zechariah 14, And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither by day or night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and His name one. That's the reign of Christ. That is what we are looking forward to. We will be in our glorified bodies when we come back to the earth with Him. We, the church, will reign with Him for that period of 1,000 years. That's described so in the book of Revelation. There will be a people who will still be in their material, physical bodies like you and I have now. There are some of those who are still after the end of the tribulation period of time that will be gathered together in Jerusalem. There will be a portion of those that will enter into that kingdom in those human bodies, natural bodies. They will not be glorified bodies because they will have to go through a period of time to be tested. Turn with me to Joel. Joel chapter 3, beginning with verse 11, talks about this same event. And Joel says, Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Take note of the fact that this is an agreement with what Jesus had been saying, that all the nations will be gathered together in Jerusalem. They'll be assembled. They'll come, all the nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit in judgment to judge the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. 
multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Remember I talked about the fact that you should underline or circle that word in the book of Zechariah chapter 14, which we had just read. He refers to a valley. It is referred to here by Joel as the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision. It is a time and a place where the nations will be judged. There will be some who will be judged for their wickedness, as is described here. There will be some who will be given the great privilege of entering into the kingdom because they have been faithful. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. On that day of that valley of decision, this group of goats and this group of sheep are about to be judged by the king. And the king, make no mistake, is Jesus Christ. The one he refers to as the king here, he also refers to as Himself, the Son of Man. And He's coming to judge. And He's going to do that with great power and authority. Turn back with me now to Matthew's Gospel. He's already been talking to this one group, the sheep that are on His right. And He said, You gave me a glass of water. You clothed me. When I was in prison, You came to visit me. You did all these wonderful things for me. And over and over again, he refers to these things as having been done to himself. And they're wondering, well, wait a minute. When did we do that to you? And that's when he answered, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, the Jewish people that are assembled here with me, the 144,000, perhaps the one-third of the Jewish nation that are still alive, you did it for them when you gave them a glass of water, when you protected them, when you hid them from being found out, kind of like perhaps in Nazi Germany, you remember the stories from those days when there were many families who protected Jews. You remember the name Cory Ten Boom? She was a woman who lived in a Dutch family in Holland protecting a group of Jews. They were finally found out by the Nazis and they were brought to prison camps along with the Jews who were subsequently killed. Only one of her family, herself, came out of that alive. She lived many years afterwards. But she was never, ever one who regretted, although she suffered greatly, having done what she did. There will be in the tribulation Gentile nations, people all over the world who will be accepting the messages that these Jewish evangelists are preaching and they will seek to protect those individuals. And they will indeed be successful. And having done what Jesus describes here in this portion, you gave them what they needed. You did it not just to them, you did it to me. That's remarkable. Jesus is identifying with them in the receiving of this wonderful mercy that was presented to them. And Jesus attributes that gift of mercy to an acceptance of His power and grace and love for them. In other words, just because they were willing to do such things for those Jews... It demonstrated that they believed what the Jews were speaking. And in believing what the Jews were speaking, they were then accepted by the Lord. They were considered righteous. When Paul was named Saul originally on his way to Damascus, he was ready to persecute the Jews who had become followers of that sect called the Way, Christians. On his way to Damascus, he was suddenly presented with a challenge by the Lord Himself. (laughs) He was blinded for three days, but the Lord said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And what do you mean persecuting you? Jesus was pointing out to Saul that the persecution that he was extending to the believers in Christ, 
was being extended not just to those believers, but to Jesus himself. He identifies with the pain and struggle of his own people. That's you and I. No matter what we might happen to go through in our lives, he identifies with that suffering. He identifies with those issues, with those problems, with those trials. He feels them all as much as you and I do. That's what he's saying to this group of people on his right. You did it to them. You've done it to me. And he's saying, that's because you are now considered by me as the righteous ones. And notice what he tells them. Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. But because of that, they are given the blessing. In verse 34 again, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Remarkable. God had already made it so. It was established. Many, many years before the foundation of the world, God had already determined this is the outcome of what God had planned. A people that would be called His own, that would be brought into this kingdom, that would be established, and in which His own Son would be the King. Now, that's the first group. The righteous ones are given the privilege of entering in. What about the goats? He gives them exactly the same thing, but in reverse. Verse 41 says, And then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The goats will not be allowed to enter into the kingdom. The book of Revelation tells us that they will be cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is where the beast and the prophet already are. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. The righteous will enter into the kingdom. They will be the nations of the world still. They will go back to their homes. They'll be established. There'll be a prosperous time such as never, ever been in all of mankind's history. Jesus will reign in Jerusalem over all the world. Those of us who are glorified saints who have already been given these bodies that He had prepared for the purpose of eternity with Him, we'll be reigning with Him. The tribulation saints, those who had been during that seven-year period of persecution, who would have lost their lives, will be raised up together. At the beginning of that millennial reign, they will also be in glorified bodies. The Jews who have died, faithful Jews like Abraham, David, Samuel, and all of the others that were faithful Jewish saints, the patriarchs of old, will be raised up and we all of us will be reigning with Him for that thousand year period of time. Those sheep that are mentioned here will enter into that kingdom in their natural bodies. They will still be married and be given in marriage. There will be children born of them and children born of their children. And the population of the world will be completely reestablished over that period of a thousand years. Isaiah describes that period of time as a great time of not only prosperity, but longevity. 
Isaiah tells us that a person who is a hundred years old that dies at a hundred will be considered a child. You may recall in your study of the Old Testament book of Genesis, and even beyond that, that mankind, when we were first on the earth, Adam and Eve lived for a long period of time. Adam lived for 930 years. The longest that we have a record of is Methuselah, 969 years. Jared, not my son, but the other Jared in the Bible, he lived 960 years. That's a long time. Well, people sometimes would argue, well, that's just kind of allegorical. That doesn't really mean they lived that long. Why do you think that? It's in the Word of God. Moses knew how long a year was. He wasn't making an allegorical statement. He was recording history. And even in some of the non-Jewish records, like the Babylonian records and the uh, other records that are ancient records, refer to people who lived great long periods of time. The Bible tells us that that will be restored during this millennial reign of Christ. It appears that He will restore not only the longevity of man, but also the entire environment will be changed back to what was apparently at least very much like what it was in the Garden of Eden. Isaiah tells us a lot of that detail. And it's worthy of you to read the book of Isaiah, although some of it is very difficult to read. There are some wonderful blessings in that wonderful prophetic word. I say all of this to say this. This is where, although Jesus doesn't speak of us, this is where we will be involved in that time on the earth for a thousand years in our glorified bodies, reigning together with all the other saints who have gone on before us, both Jew and Gentile. I believe that the Bible tells us very specifically that David will actually be reigning again in Jerusalem over the nation of Israel. Jesus will sit on His throne, and you can see in Ezekiel chapter 40-44 through 44 that the temple will again be rebuilt, His temple, and His throne will be in that temple. And people will come from all the nations during that millennial reign at the appointed periods of time. There's a feast that Israel still observes today called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a feast that reminds them of God's provision for them in the desert, in the wilderness, and that they had been delivered from slavery in Egypt. That was a yearly feast that they still do participate in today. And that's one of the feasts, perhaps the only one, that will be observed yearly in the millennial reign of Christ. And what will be the purpose? Well, the purpose is basically simply the same. That people from all over, Gentile nations as well as a Jewish nation, will be celebrating this Feast of Tabernacles together in appreciation for what God has done for them and delivering them from the penalty of sin. And there will be sacrifices made during that period of time. Not in order to cover sin. That's already been done by Christ but in memorial to what Christ has done. So there will be things going on in that millennial reign, that time of 1,000 years, that all of us will be participating in. But the nations, those who are still upon the earth in their natural bodies, will be required to come to Jerusalem at appointed times. And if they choose not to, the Lord will judge them. Remember, He's coming to rule with a, a, a rod of iron. His authority is absolute. And there will be some who, over that period of time, who will, well, I'm not really sure I want to go along with all of this stuff. Why do I have to go to Jerusalem every year? I don't want to do that. They'll have that attitude. How can I know? Because at the end of the thousand years, there is a revolution that will take place. Remember I said that Satan will be bound for a thousand years. During that thousand years, in, in, in other words, there will be no satanic influence in the world. Well, then, why are you describing what appears to be a sinful group of people? Because they are sinful. They're still in their natural bodies. The sheep have entered in. They believe in Jesus Christ. But their children and their children's children, they have to be convinced. Just like everybody around you that you know, in your neighborhood, in your place of work, 
Everyone needs to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. They would not, all of them, receive that as truth. Just like it is today. Over that period of a thousand years, there will be a multitude of people who will say, I've had enough of this Jesus ruling over me. And when Satan is once again released, tells us that he's released for a thousand years, uh, bound for a thousand years, but for a short period of time he will be released. And in that short period of time, he's going to gather up together an army of men and women who are against the Christ. Even after all of what they have been given. No different than what you see around you today. God himself We'll put an end to that in an instant of time. After that millennial reign of Christ comes the white throne judgment. Take note of the fact that the judgment of the nations is a separate judgment before the millennial reign begins. The great white throne judgment is the judgment of God of Christ rejecting mankind at the end of that 1,000 years. The Word of God is so very, very explicit, very detailed, very, very accurate in its presentation of how these events are going to work out. We just don't know when. But the truth of the matter is, the Word of God is indeed a promise that you can hold dear to. Believe it with all your heart. It is going to take place. Jesus said it. But the thing that bothers me about this passage that we've looked at, is that those who were the goats could have been among the sheep. And when you think about that period of seven years, all of those things that were being presented that gave them, without doubt, all the evidence they needed to believe in Jesus Christ, yet they rejected Him. In our world today, we have the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible is proclaimed throughout this world, daily, on the airways, everywhere you turn. You can get information about what the Word of God says. But they don't want to hear it. They don't want to see with their eyes because they want themselves to be continually blinded by Satan. They love darkness rather than light. But there is hope for any of them still because those events have not yet taken place. The church is still here. And so if the church is still here, then there must be hope for the lost. The Bible talks about a point in time that Paul refers to as the fullness of Gentiles being come in. The implication in that passage that Paul speaks of the fullness of Gentiles in the book of Romans, chapter 16, is that there is coming a point in time when the door will be shut. The books will no longer be opened for salvation of souls while the church is on the ground. I believe it's an indication that there's coming a day when the fullness of Gentiles will be come in, the last person that is to be saved will be saved and will be gone out of this world because he'll come for us at that very moment of time. The rapture of the church is imminent. Could happen any time. I hope that we are ready. He said, be ready. Keep looking up. Your redemption draws near. Pray that you can escape those things that are coming upon the face of the earth. How are we to escape those things? By putting our trust in Him. By believing in His Word. By accepting His salvation that He gives freely. By having our names written in the Lamb's book of life through faith in Christ and what He has done on the cross. The saving of our souls is dependent upon one thing. What have we done with Jesus Christ? Who do we say He is? Is He our Lord? Truly, take note of the fact that these goats, as well as the sheep, call Him Lord. But take note also of the fact that He doesn't recognize the goats' commendation of His Lordship. 
They've already been judged because they were not faithful to His Word and to Him and His people. And as a result, they're cast into outer darkness. They'll go into everlasting punishment. Take note in verse 46. In some of your translations, it's a better translation than this one that I'm reading. Because in my translation it says, those who go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. So there seems to be, in this translation, two separate words. One for everlasting and one for eternal. And some might say, well, there's a slight difference in those two words, so therefore, uh, perhaps he doesn't mean everlasting in the sense of always receiving punishment. You'd like to think so, wouldn't you? You don't want to think of the poor people who go into that state are going to have to suffer for eternity. The problem is, in the original Greek language, it's the same word. Both everlasting and eternal are the same word in the Greek language in the original text. They are the same word, therefore therefore they are the same extension of time. Everlasting and eternal is forever. Everlasting punishment is eternal punishment. Everlasting life is eternal life. Jesus warned, listen to the words of our Lord so that when you stand before Him and you call Him Lord, He'll acknowledge your recognition of His Lordship in your life. And He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom eternal. At the end of that thousand-year reign of Christ, after the white throne judgment, What takes place after that? The Bible tells us that God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Peter talks about the fact that this earth, this heavens, will be burned with fervent heat, destroyed, and He will create a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no evidence anywhere of sin. God will not allow sin in His presence. And the ultimate result of all of these things that are recorded here and elsewhere where we haven't yet read, but we will, the Lord willing, all of these things are for one purpose, an eternity with His people that He has loved. We're among those if we are truly born again. And again, remind yourself of these words from the book of Colossians. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Let that be what you put your hope in today. In Jesus' name.